0: I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on press box Access. There were writers I immediately thought of when I came up with the idea for this show. Gary Shelton was one of them. It's not just because Gary is a hell of a writer, twice honored as the nation's best sports columnist by APSC. His columns have long been making fans think, laugh, and sometimes howl with anger in Tampa Bay and throughout Florida. But for me, Gary has been more than a writer I've enjoyed reading. He has been someone who made me glad I was a sports writer alongside him. He made the job more fun, with a story, an observation, a witty line, always delivered with a twinkle in his eye. Gary is a guy you wanted to sit by on Press Row or on a media bus. Join us now and you'll understand why. Hey, Gary, welcome to Press Box Access.
1: Hello, Todd. How have you been?
0: I've been great. It's so great to hear your voice again. It's been so long since we chatted and I really enjoyed the times we spent together covering a lot of events. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I'm very, very hungry for your stories. I am not hungry for some of the crap that you've eaten on the road during your <laughs> career. I think we were in Athens, Greece together at the Olympics in 2004, and I recall that you were much braver than me. Pray yeah, tell, we, we, what did we you had, eat?
1: We had, we had sheep intestines once. <laughs> uh, we, we were out, and a, a guy just points to an appetizer on the menu and it wasn't what he thought it was. It was sheep intestines, and it tasted like sheep intestines would taste. (laughs) Like chicken?
0: (laughs) No, like sheep intestines. (laughs) Like sheep intestines. Who who ate the sheep intestines, by the way? I'm the one who swallowed.
1: (laughs) There were three of us. Two of us put it in our mouths, and only I swallowed. Oh, and you live to tell about it. Uh, Yeah. Well, I'm from the South. We eat everything.
0: That's right. Just deep fry it.
1: It was in China. Now, in China, they have critter carts. They have grasshoppers and starfish. And, you know, I mean, the thing is, if it walks, they eat it. Well, a bunch of the cadre I run with uh, had discovered a different restaurant. And unfortunately, or I guess fortunately, I wasn't able to join them that day. But uh you know the part that makes uh you a, a ram yeah you know, on the sheep? Yeah. Uh that's <laughs> what they served. They served every kind of uh animal male genitalia you can imagine. Oh god it cooked in different sauces and different uh styles of cooking it. And so all four of my friends uh and like I said I probably would have gotten roped along to going with them on a normal day, but I had something to do, thank goodness. And <laughs> they came back and they had all eaten uh, animal parts, shall You're we being say? Kind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the wangers they had eaten. <laughs> uh, Chinese so, wangers. Uh, so I brought up one of the guys a banana and said, I don't know if you had time for dessert. Oh, God. Oh. So, uh, yeah, there, there's There's different kinds of things you eat.
0: Well, sometimes folks want us to eat our words and I know that's occurred to you a little bit at times. Uh, uh that's yeah. what that's the price you pay for being one of the best sports columnists in the nation. A must read in Tampa Bay for over 3 decades and in the state of Florida since 1984. Um you know, Gary, you're the type of columnist that always makes you think, makes you laugh makes you ponder, makes you uh, upset sometimes. Have you had times where people, um, well, what is the most pissed off somebody's wanted to be with you uh, over something you wrote?
1: Uh, I was, uh, my life was threatened when I was like an 18-year-old sports writer. Really? Yeah, uh, a high school football player had broken his neck during a game, fractured it, but he was still ambulatory and his coach tried to send him back into the game. So I visited the kid in the hospital and wrote about it. And his father called me and said, uh, if this runs, I will kill you. And, mm. you know, for an 18-year-old kid, that's kind of heady to hear. Uh, but it ran, and uh, the weekly paper in his hometown actually picked it up. <laughs> so, oh, so then you know, it ran everywhere. Yeah, so yeah. so not only did – if if I had gotten by, he was going to make sure I didn't. Uh, but I didn't get killed, fortunately. And, um, you yeah, know, I've had a lot of angry athletes, a lot of angry uh, football players, uh, a lot of angry coaches. You yeah, know, Don Shula, you know, expanded his vocabulary against me. Well, I once read you said
0: that I graduated from Auburn University and the Don Shulow School of having my face yelled into.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> we, were, we were at dolphin practice once and Robbie came out. Robbie never came to dolphin practice.
0: Joe Robbie, the owner.
1: Yeah, Joe Robbie. So we all gather around him and at one point in typical bravado for an owner, he said, Well, at the end of the year, Shula will deal with the players and I'll deal with Shula. Well, hmm. you're not gonna bench the guy. So what are you talking about? So I asked him, Are you talking about firing Shula? And he says, Oh no, of course not. So I didn't run anything. Uh yeah, you know, he he dodged the bullet. I didn't write anything. Shula got so pissed at me for even asking the question. Yeah, you know, I mean, you talk about grades and shades of, of of profanity bouncing off the walls in his office. He had a little brown leather chair. We used to call it the Durial Harris chair, because that's where Durial would come in to get yelled at. <laughs> I remember sit, sitting uncomfortably in that chair, chair while he just reamed me. But the next day, he was pretty much okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was shoes.
0: What did you? What did you? How did you deal with that? Like you were, uh, let's set this up. You were covering the Dolphins for the Miami Herald in the 1980s. Right. And this is a daily beat, and it's a tough beat, the NFL. And you're dealing with one of the all-time great coaches, the winningest coach in NFL history. And you you have this relationship that sounds pretty volatile. How did you deal with that on a daily basis?
1: You know, Shula, in memory, is, is a nice guy. And most of the time, he was a nice guy. He Mm -hmm. had nice values. He didn't cheat on his wife. He didn't lie. He took great pride in never lying. He wouldn't answer your questions, but Mm -hmm. he wouldn't lie. Uh, So most of the time, it was fine. But Shula was also a terrific bully. Uh, He would jump somebody over nothing and just make them feel like the smallest insect on earth. Uh, and that part I didn't like about him very much. But uh, for, the, for the most part, I learned a lot. I learned to phrase questions better. Mm-hmm. I learned to be responsible better, to double check more. Uh, you know, the, the harshest critics you ever find will make you better. Hmm. You know that from, from your own experience. Mm you know uh when someone's climbing your butt it doesn't matter if you think they're baseless but if you think they've got a grain of truth in there then it bothers you
0: mm. give us an example of something back in your days covering the dolphins um of when that occurred specifically is there a story or a moment that you recall well
1: there there was a uh there's a young guy named Victor Lee who worked for Palm Beach young kid uh really a prep writer at the time. Well, on Saturdays, Palm Beach is a long way away. It's a 45-minute drive. So the beat guy would take the day off, and they would send this kid down with a list of questions. So he shows up, and he's so nervous, he drops his tape recorder getting out of the car, and he goes up, and he's very nervous. And she just looks at him once and says, who are you? Mm. He goes, I'm Victor Lee, Coach Palm Beach, Palm Beach Post. And Shula goes, looks at his hand, doesn't shake it, and goes, why were you talking to my player? Well, we were all talking to players. Mm. But he picks on this kid, and he goes, well, I was just asking him how he is. And Shula says, don't ask him how he is. I'll tell you how he is. And so the guy's automatically on his heels, and we're all rubbing our necks and looking at the sky and trying not to get drawn into the debate. And uh, Victor looks down at his list, and he says, well, I guess you'll be pulling for Seattle today. And he goes, you think it matters to Chuck Knox who I pull for? Do you think it matters two hills of beans who I'm pulling for? And just dresses the kid down. All he hmm. had to do was saying, well, that would be nice for us in, in the playoff race if Seattle were to were to win. Hmm. Um, yeah, and, you know, little moments like that were just just beneath Shula, to be honest. Hmm. I mean, here he was as the most admired coach in the game at the time. And uh, had won all kinds of coach of the year awards, had won Super Bowls. He didn't need to belittle a, a prep writer. Yeah, you know, Victor Lee ended up leaving the the profession and uh, becoming a monastery, uh, joining a monastery. And I still wonder how much that upbraiding had to do with it.
0: Hmm. You know, it's interesting because those those things occurred really back before cell phones and the cameras and Twitter and the, and the internet. It. And the internet itself, right? So you had moments where you just had to hold your ground. And, you know, like you said, if you did write something, especially if it was an opinion, um, you had to face the music. And that's part of the relationship. That's part of the relationship you had. I'm just curious about Shula because obviously, you know, again, the winningest coach ever You said he was such a nice person, Uh, it could be, he was religious, nice man. Why why do you think he had to play that role? Is it just something about football and he was just trying to set a tone around the media?
1: I think it's a power thing. Yeah, he was the nicest guy in the world when a national writer or a national broadcaster would show up. Mm -hmm. He was jovial, he'd pat you on the shoulder, he thought it was just great to see you, but... The beat writers who were there every day were kind of his herd, and he had to keep keep them in line, I think, because it was his motivating factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he never wanted it unchallenged that he, this was his team, that he was the, the guide. I remember once I did a piece on, uh, on uh, St. Thomas University, and just what a piece of crap it was. It was like a spinny Field. You know, Cincinnati, right, Cincinnati, right. Know very yeah. well. right. Uh, but it, it was, you know, there were potholes in the parking lot, and the, the uh, weight room was outdoors. And, you know, I mean, it was really a piece of crap. It was a real testament to Shula's coaching ability that he could win with those kind of facilities. So I wrote a piece and just ripped the facilities. I'd been to San Francisco and seen what the 49ers had in Santa Clara. Mm-hmm. And just did a comparison piece on what NFL teams worked with. And one of the assistant coaches came in that day and turned to Shula and says, did you see that crap in the newspaper? And Shula looked up and says, yeah, it was great, wasn't it? (laughs) Because he wanted everyone to know what he had to deal with. (laughs) And he did. And he did. It was a piece of crap. But, you know, the good thing for for a journalist was everyone walked in the same locker room door from the same parking lot. So if you were there when they came to work, yours was the first face they saw. And when they left in the afternoon, yours was the last face they saw.
0: That's right. That's and right.
1: it really helped break a few stories.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting, the relationship between especially football coaches in the media has always fascinated me. And you've been around so many of them, you know, starting like in your early days when you were starting out in the business in Columbus, Georgia, at the Enquirer there. And you were around Bear Bryant at the end of his time. Uh, I, I mean,
1: covered Bear Bryant. I covered Bowden. I covered Spurrier. You know, a lot, lot of wins between those guys. I covered a lot the of wins, which is a lot of national championships there. Well but the
0: bear the bear is somebody that's just mythical, right? Because it's almost like well, he's he
1: was mythical to me.
0: What uh, was it like as a young reporter to be around Bear Bryant at the end of his career? It was
1: frightening. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you all this malarkey about how I stood up and I told him I was scared to death of the guy. The guy was John Wayne. Yeah, he was made out of leather. Uh, Yeah, he had this deep rumbling voice from hell itself. (laughs) Uh, But he would answer your questions when you asked him a direct question, and he would. uh, Yeah, he called me back when a a local high school legend, coach, died. A guy named Pig Davis, whose sons Mm -hmm. were all the kickers, the kicking Davises for the University of Alabama and uh it was just as nice as he could be but uh it was it was like being you know i, I was a small town boy right. I, had, I had no sense of the importance of people or i probably would have been more scared <laughs> but uh, he, he was something he was really something he cast a long shadow
0: you know, I once went down to Tuscaloosa to do some reporting on you know, several days about Alabama football for a, a long takeout and I always remember going into the, there's a the museum where they have recreated Bear's office. <laughs> and you just stand there and stare at it. I don't know what you're, you know, what you're thinking, but you're staring at this office and I'm thinking that's how mythical this guy is. They want to show you where he sat at his desk, and it was they told- wear
1: hats the way the the style of hat he wore. Right to this day, they wear houndstooth hats. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's just staggering. It really is. And- was there
0: was there something about the fact that it, this was before the internet, and we didn't know everything about? Everybody that there was almost a little bit of mystery and distance, even though we didn't know who we knew Bear Bryant, but we didn't know everything about Bear Bryant.
2: No,
1: and, you know, there were no long TV interviews. There were no uh, things where you think you get to know a guy, but you don't. Todd, one of the things I say most these days is it's never been harder to be a good journalist, and it's never been easier to be a bad one. Hmm. That's because of all the internet, people who write stories, who've never talked to the guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think in our day, one of the things that we did, besides have a lot of fun, was uh, we had opportunities to sit down with people. Mm. Uh, Once a week, I would pick a different buck player, and I would sit down with him for an hour. This is Derek Brooks, Warren Sapp, all of them.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And... Yeah, you know, I don't know a lot of today's. I don't know Tom Brady, mm-hmm. except what he lets us in. Yeah, but even I, though you're still you're still yet.
0: writing, you're still writing in Tampa Bay for your website, okay. and you, Tom Brady is the quarterback. But you don't have really any kind of working relationship, I so. assume.
1: No, I think if I passed him in a mall, I don't think he'd say hi. Mm. I don't. I think if I pass Warren Sapp in the hall is is much of a war as Warren and I had at times. I think he would come up and shake shake my hand and ask how I've been. <laughs> uh, you well, you know, mentioned
0: I, you mentioned an hour with those guys, uh, Sapp. All right, there, there's a character, right? So Ed's you're doing home. an hour with Warren Sapp. You're a columnist in Tampa Bay. You're writing your opinion. Uh, you know, I didn't read it, but they, you know, they know what's being said and written. Oh, Warren read. Uh, it. Warren yeah. read every word. So you're sitting down with Warren for an hour once in a while, and you mentioned war. What was your relationship like with a guy like Warren Sapp?
1: It, it changed. Uh, I remember doing a, a big, long session with Warren over the memory of Jerome Brown.
0: Jerome Brown, the late uh, defensive lineman from the Miami Hurricanes and then Philadelphia. Right.
1: And you know, he was kind of a mentor to, to Sapp. Sapp had been to his home, knew his mom. And just worship the guy, just idolize the guy. And he's the guy who told me that the Eagles had, had had that memorial locker kept intact for Jerome, but they had taken it down. And he was just offended they had taken it down. Hmm. And we had a marvelous conversation. Next day, Warren walks by me, doesn't speak. <laughs> <I> mean, that's <laughs> how hot and cold he was.
0: Um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. When it, when when he was hot what was it like when he was oh, really engaging he was the
1: most entertaining guy who ever walked really he was funny he was loud he was profane uh he he knew his place in the community he he told me once when i am gone people will cheer and i said no no you you're the the best defensive player they've had in this franchise since Roy selman and he go no, you you walk, and damned if he wasn't right. When he retired, people acted like you know Hitler had, had died. Why? You know, just because he offended so many people. <laughs> he would he would chew tobacco and spit into a towel in front of the TV cameras. Uh, <laughs> he, he would refuse to shake people's hands in public.
0: I got to say, I got stiffed by him once at a Super Bowl where, like, he just gave me the iciest glare. And if he I just... didn't
1: know you, he wasn't going to spend yeah. two two seconds of time. And he didn't care what you thought about him. Most of us care. Most of us want to be liked. Mm-hmm. Warren didn't care if you liked him or not.
0: Hmm. It, sounds like, it sounds like you liked him.
1: Uh, yeah, I actually did. Uh, when my daughters were young... My daughter, Casey, wanted a Warren Sapp jersey. Mm -hmm. And so I told Sapp this, and he said, that must scare the hell out of you. (laughs) (laughs) I said, yeah, Warren, it kind of (laughs) does. What's your all-time favorite
0: Warren Sapp story?
1: Oh, my God. Uh, There's so many. Uh, He was uh, going on about uh, Michael Strahan once, and he said... You tell Strahan that the NFL has a good dental policy. They can fix those teeth. <laughs> so you tell Strahan he lost to Dilfer in the Super Bowl. It was, uh, yeah, some of these guys
0: could do stand-up, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Warren called me back the day he filed for bankruptcy. I had no clue that this guy would return my call. Right. But you called out of due diligence. And sure enough, he calls and he lays the whole story out about how he had, he trusted somebody and invested all his money and you know, took a bath and had to declare bankruptcy. And uh, it made for a great story. I that's interesting. No, I have no idea why he called me back.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Like he almost had like a new sense that. I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. Sometimes, right? Yeah. You know? No.
1: It's just that's why you always call, though, isn't
0: it? Yeah. Make the call, right? Make the call. Yeah. Well, you've been making the call for quite a while down <laughs> in Tampa Bay. I'm nice not saying you're way. not saying you're old, uh, but I, I want to get back to the but, coaches. You, you I, know, we I talked... was
1: there when Edison was called. <laughs> you broke the news, right? <laughs> yeah. I need you.
0: I want to get back to the coaches. We talked about Shula. We talked about Bear Bryant. You mentioned Bobby Bowden and Steve Spurrier. You've been writing about football and and all sports, but football in the South, in Florida, since 1984. Um, And so you're around Bowden. You're around Spurrier. You're around the the U and Jimmy Johnson. Um, Give us a little Bobby Bowden. He really was cut from a different era in terms of accessibility and quotability, right?
1: I love Bobby Bowden. I walked out of the stadium for the final time after Bobby Bowden was run off from Florida State and walked out with him. Uh, He was was your Uncle Ned. Hmm. There was nothing put on about that. He was really your guy. And, uh, you know, Florida State people always feel picked on. And they're always going, well— There were 321 stories last year in Florida and only 318 on FSU. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, they're that kind of people. But most... Writers I knew loved covering Florida State because Bowden was so easy. He was his his own best PR guy. Uh, I remember being on the field at Notre Dame and talking to him about all the Notre Dame legends and how few of his kids had any idea who these guys were. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Bobby would just fall right in. Uh, he's a great guy, terrific guy, and really got a bad deal at, at Florida State.
0: All right. I was around him a little bit at, you know, occasionally a bowl game. I was at the famous Notre Dame loss in ninety four with Charlie Ward. But I wasn't around him enough to know like was it an authentic folksyism or was he playing a character or was that just who Bobby Bowden was?
1: That's who Bobby Bowden was. He was Andy Griffith. I mean <laughs> he, he, he was he was the dad gummet uh we don't say dad enough, right? And we need more dad Yeah, I, I'm with you. Let's start a movement. <laughs> <laughs> but Bowden, I, I once asked him a question. I said, Okay, I've got a loaded gun. Who are you going to vote for, number one, your team or the University of Miami? And he said, I want to answer however it is that you won't shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Just give me an honest answer. And he said, Miami. And I got so ticked because another writer wrote that entire exchange as if it was him asking the question. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. You're one.
0: You're the one raising the gun issue. Yeah, here. yeah.
1: I've <laughs> got the invisible gun here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he was great. He had one guy, one writer who followed him around everywhere. Once followed him into the shower. Oh, come on. No, that's that's the story Bowden told us himself. Come on. I didn't know. No, we're off the air, I'll tell you the guy's no, name. No, wait a minute. Go ahead. No, we're, there's no off the air here. Okay, Craig Barnes. Really? Yeah. I'll tell you what. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it, it was it was pretty fun. But you could ask the guy anything. Apparently, anything. <laughs> um, the word, one of the worst things I ever did was I wrote an early column once. You remember early columns.
0: Oh, yeah. Back in those days when you had to fill a hole for the you first edition and write about the game before it even begins. Right. Love it.
1: Well, well, Florida was playing Florida State. And I wrote, you know, this could be the last time we see Bowden versus Spurrier. You know, and Spurrier and all his high tech offense and Bowden and all his folksyism and Uncle Ned act. <laughs> and, uh, you yeah, know, it really hit me as a, as a poignant moment. And I was very proud of the column. Then I tore it up and threw it away because Jesse Palmer had had a good night. Yeah, right, right. It was an absolutely horseshit decision, and I should be flogged for ever doubting my early column. But you got <laughs> to figure it's on deadline. You're there. You need right. to write something that pertains to the game. But uh, I still beat myself up over that one.
0: What's the worst deadline situation you had?
1: Oh, God. Uh, we used to have to write running on 4 o'clock games in Miami. It's because we had an edition that went to South America, <laughs> so, but because we had a reader in Bogota, I had to write an early piece on uh, Dan Marino playing against the Jets. The worst it, uh I went by the office to get supplies once before a Monday night game. Bad mistake. Never go to the office. Yeah, don't go to the
0: office. I know a sports writer in Philly. His paper had three different offices during during his tenure. Two of the offices he never stepped foot in.
1: <laughs> well, I should have followed his advice. So you I stepped in the in. office. You stepped in the office. What happened? Well, Paul Anger, the many the, the sports editor, calls me in and he says, Yeah, you know, Gary, it's a big game tonight. They were playing the undefeated Chicago Bears in 1985. You may mm-hmm. remember the night. Right. And I said, Yeah, it's it's gonna be a pretty big game. And he says, it's kind of the game we're going to want, one of those big play of the game diagrams, which were all in vogue in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I can see that, Paul. I, we might want to do that. And he says, well, I guess what I'm asking is, can you write it? Can you do it? And I said, well, Paul, I'm going to be on deadline writing the lead. I said, "Yeah, there's no way. I, you know, I see a lot of the plays before replay." And he says, "Well, you know,'d really be big." And I said, uh, well, Paul, they were working on a on a trick play. I could write you that and on the off chance they use it." Mm-hmm. And he goes, "No, no, I don't think that'll do." <laughs> and he says, "And this is for the managing editor, which you know, just makes you sh- shrivel. <laughs> and I go, yeah, what does he want? He says, well, he wants to know if you could do it now. <laughs> now? <laughs> now. It's five in the afternoon. Kickoff's at nine. And I said, Paul, Okay, Nostradamus, Shelton, what do you got? I said, Paul, every team's, team's going to run 80 plays. I don't know which one the cornerback's going to slip on, or the linebacker's going to get fooled on, or the safety's going to miss a tackle on. There's just no way to know. Right, And he says, well, Can you do it now? (laughs) And I said, I don't think we can do it now. He says, can you call someone? I said, who, Gene Dixon? (laughs) I said, yeah. Do you want me to call Shula and say, look, Don, just between you and I, I know you're getting ready for the game, but in four hours, what do you think the big play of the game is going to be?
0: You know what that, that would have earned you the brown chair. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that that would have gotten me right there. Uh but I walked out of that office and people were looking at me like I was something less, like I had failed somehow.
0: Well, you know, I think the whole industry cratered because you would not do the, the big play of the game four hours before kickoff.
1: Well, we ended up doing like what what the Bucks were doing with their X receiver on on the quick slants. Uh But I had no way to know that at five o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) So to me, that was the worst deadline.
0: Yeah, sometimes when we talk about the golden age of newspapers, I'm like, really? Really? (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) We laughed. We We had fun. Hey, we mentioned a lot about Shula and I'd be remiss to not bring up Dan Marino because uh, you were the beat writer again at the, in those days covering Dan. And as you mentioned with, you know, today a guy like Tom Brady, you just don't get a chance to talk with. In those days, in the 80s and even into the 90s and longer a little bit, uh, a guy like Dan Marino, you, were, you had access to him, right? You, you were able to talk access, with him a lot. didn't
1: do you any good.
0: Why do you say that?
1: Well, they had a backup named Don Strock, who had been the starter for a brief period of time. And he kind of took on Danny as his mentor and told Danny, never say crap. And Dan didn't. You would ask him about a cornerback. Oh, he's a great player. You would ask him about an opposing team. They're a fine team. And he just bored you to death. (laughs) He's the only athlete I've ever seen. When you saw your competitor talking to him across the parking lot, you didn't worry because he wasn't telling him crap either. (laughs) <laughs> now, Danny went on and was a pretty good t v commentator
0: right that's why that's why it surprises me a little bit,
1: yeah, but he wouldn't he wouldn't open his mouth then what was he like like when he wasn't
0: being quoted and you were just talking?
1: He was a pretty good guy. I remember having a beer with him in a pub in uh in England before the American bowl one year nice, and just we just talked and uh You know, about different perceptions of him that he didn't think was true. You know who Dan was? Dan was the third baseman for your slow pitch softball team who was all cocky and full of himself. (laughs) Only he happened to make it as an NFL quarterback. (laughs) Right. He could deliver. But he's that guy. Wow. You know, we've all played with Dan Marino.
0: Mm. What made him great? other than the quick release. Yeah, Is the great else?
1: made him right. great. Uh, stubborn, arrogant as hell, competitive as hell. Yeah, I guess most of the ones that are great are really competitive. Uh, yeah, his misfortune was he joined a team when it was coming off a of Super Bowl, and that team got older every day. The mm-hmm. offensive line grew old, the defense grew old, and pretty soon, Marino was all they had. Mm. Right. People rip him because he didn't want a lot of Super Bowls. He didn't want a lot of Super Bowls because his team was getting old. Right. So much of that is, uh,
0: you know, great quarterback, wrong situation, or good quarterback, great situation. You know, it's really a chicken egg thing
1: a yeah, lot of it's times. Dan Fowles versus. Uh... Joe Montana, right? Yeah, you know, Joe right. Montana was a great quarterback. Don't get me wrong, but exactly. he but he was there when Jerry Rice was young. He was there when uh, uh, Haley was 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 a great player. Mm-hmm. He was there when when Lott was a great player, uh, and they kind of grew up together. And a lot of the great teams, that's the case. You know, the old Steelers. They they were a young team together and grew older together. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the Buffalo Bills never won it, but they were the same thing, a young play, young team that grew older together.
0: Right. Speaking of Marino, didn't the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have a chance to draft Marino? Or did it look like they had a pathway to, to possibly drafting him?
1: I, I think the story is this, that the previous year, they traded their number one pick for Booker Reese, one of the all-time busts in the NFL.
0: Booker Reese, I'd, I'd have to like look through a list of... Uh... Deadpool, well, I've
1: got like, a long story <laughs> I wrote on him from prison. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> uh, but in fact, they they told him once uh, Booker went and got some headache tablets once, and the safety Mark Cotney said Booker, those are cold tablets. You got to put them in the fridge first. So he went. And he put them in the refrigerator. Oh, come on! <laughs> left them there for a couple hours. Came back and then took them. <laughs> but anyway. That number one pick the next year could have been used for Dan Marino. Really?
0: Yeah. That's, that's the story.
1: But instead, they got Booker Reese. And that was the same draft when the people accidentally drafted Sean Farrell. Oh, wow. But Because the, the headphones... <laughs> what, do you mean, accidentally, what do you mean accidentally drafted him? Well, they had two names down, Booker Reese and Sean Farrell. And the, the scout at the office got the go-ahead and it cut out. And all he heard was Sean Farrell. So they went to the podium and drafted Sean Farrell, who turned out to be a pretty good player. Booker <laughs> East did not. Booker yeah. had two career sacks. But, <laughs> now, that's the kind of story we should
0: remind ourselves when we, when we go into the months of analysis before the draft today and, and what a science it. it is.
1: Yeah, and we're all experts and they're all experts. <laughs>
0: That's awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's pretty incredible. Well, the Tampa Bay
0: Buccaneers is a franchise you know well and still know well as as a writer for uh, GarySheltonSports.com. The Bucs, you know, they've been to a couple, they've won a couple Super Bowls, they won one obviously a couple years ago with Brady, they won one in 2002, but they've also had these years where they were just kind of like total buffoons, right?
1: Oh, they were the worst team in the, in, in the history of the league.
0: Were they a calmness dream because of that?
1: Yeah, after a while, your foot gets tired of kicking. <laughs> but, but yeah, they would always do something to screw it up. Uh, you know, they would hire Richard Williamson when no one else in the league, in the state, in college football was going to hire Richard Williamson. But they had taken this run at Bill Parcells, and again, they've taken several runs at Bill Parcells, failed every time. Uh, they cut the end of a, of a receiver's finger off once. What? Yeah, uh, Alvin Harper, another noted bust, had a little tear on the flap of his uh, of his finger. And when they were messing with it, the trainer just cut it off by mistake. <laughs> Oops. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, even with 10 fingers, he wasn't very good. <laughs> That's for... Pretty- <laughs> All right, I just,
0: <laughs> excuse me, excuse me. Sorry, I'm sorry about your fingertip. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You <laughs> so when you get there as a columnist, uh, well, actually you were there for, as the NFL writer the first couple of years and then became the columnist.
1: You was know, Ray, well, who was the
0: coach? Was Ray Perkins the coach then?
1: Ray Perkins was the coach and thought he was intimidating. I had just come from Don Shula. Don Shula, who had all these accomplishments, Ray Perkins, who had never you know, made a Coca-Cola bubble, <laughs> uh, he held up uh, one of my columns once. They traded the number two pick in the entire draft for a backup quarterback, Chris Chandler and I wrote that it was a stupid trade. It was far more than any team in the league had paid for the backup quarterback. Right. So, we, so he holds our section up, and he says, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And I said, I'll compare my resume against his any day. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, a lot of coaches would have taken me up on it, and I would have lost badly, not to Ray
0: Perkins. So he was a bully, but he had nothing to back it up.
1: Right. He was all, had no cattle, as they say in Texas.
0: Right, right. Well, we have a coach uh, that we kind of share a common background with, and I was around him in my early days of my career when I worked in Cincinnati, and you were around him in Tampa, and that's Sam Weish.
1: That's Sam.
0: And I was, (laughs) yeah, right? (laughs) And that was my introduction to the NFL as a young writer out of college was Sam, you know, who, uh, this brilliant mind, but... Well, how would you describe Sam? The well, late, great, let's let's say the late, great Sam White. What,
1: <laughs> yeah, in the end of his life, Sam and I got along famously. I would call, I remember when he was mentoring Tim Tebow, when Tebow was coming out for the draft, mm-hmm. and he was a huge Tebow guy. And he was just as nice to me, and I had been... 14 shades of mean to him. I used to describe Sam, I think I've used this line with you before, he had 17 personalities but one of them was a really good guy. The problem is you couldn't count on getting that one personality. (laughs) Yeah. He, he Are you sure working? it was
0: only 17?
1: It could have been 117. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on his <the> sugar level. <laughs> That's right. That's right. People forget that. The best thing Paul Brown ever did was make him go home and take care of his diet. Right. right. And they went to the Super Bowl. Right. With the
0: Bengals. Well, Sam had such a brilliant mind for the game. Offensively, you know, he was ahead of the curve on the—
1: on He the, was Captain Queeg, though. He thought everyone was out to get him. Hmm. He really did. Uh, he, he got in a wrestling match with uh, Don Banks once. He uh, Don Banks was our beat writer, the mm-hmm. late, great Don Banks. Right. And uh, Don had written a piece that day quoting two unnamed sources. We never used unnamed sources, but this he got a special dispensation to do. And um, they were very well-placed things, talking about how Sam had lost the team. And Sam came out in his press conference and talked about how his dear mother with cancer couldn't even read the paper anymore because of the lies that were there. And so, so Don couldn't leave it alone. If he just let Sam be an idiot on Sam's self, instead he walks up and he says, Sam, that was really low. And Sam goes, you're a piece of shit. You're just a piece of shit. And so Don holds up his tape recorder and shows him it's on. So Sam tries to whisper it. Here's <laughs> a piece of shit. Here's just a piece of shit. And they start <laughs> arm wrestling like like uh, Brady and the gun. <laughs> you know, with Reagan. <laughs> and, and Chip Nami is the PR guy Is trying to gra- grab hold of the mic, too. Like there are three sets of hands in there. <laughs> It was the most absurd day in the history of absurd days of an absurd franchise.
0: <laughs> well, you know, those are the days that you think about. What I always think when somebody says, you know, what was it like to be a sports writer? I think of moments like that, right?
1: You know what I think of? I think of the moments before the game and after the game when you're sitting around talking to your buddies and maybe you talk about what you wrote maybe you probably don't but you think about things you thought were silly things you thought were absurd things that happened to you during the time and those are the best moments Mm. you know it it was really a schoolyard i mean they call it the toy department for a reason and we had such a good time Uh, um give us
0: some give us a memory along those lines about what it was like to be a sports writer back in the day. You're still writing, the world has changed in terms of how the job is done. What was it like back in the day to do that job?
1: You know, you went everywhere. You had great access. You know, you, 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 you saw things, you know, right? Up. I remember, you know, we used to go down and, and gather at the South Gate at Wimbledon for Richard Williams to come down. And he would talk about things like how his daughters had it worse than Althea Gibson, mm. which is one of the most preposterous statements I've ever heard. Mm. You know, Althea Gibson was a black woman. In the 50s, right. In a day when there was no black people of, of, at all at Wimbledon. Yeah. She was the first pioneer in women's tennis. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, instead of honoring her her memory, which he easily could have done, Richard just is off on how his daughters don't do enough TV commercials. Yeah, mm. uh, you know, the the press box w- w- was was a, a a great place. you know. somebody's always got something wise ass to say. Often it was me. Sometimes it was you. <laughs> yeah, I was just
0: gonna say, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say it was probably one of us, you or me, <laughs> yeah. or maybe maybe we were doing a chorus.
1: <laughs> well, wh- what's the story you and I tell all the time? We were at a gymnastics convention. In Philly, was it?
0: I think, I think it was Boston.
1: Boston, but we we did a table in the back, and we called it Idiot Island. <laughs> yes,
0: it was me, you, Sam Donnellan from the Philadelphia Daily News, right?
1: And I think another couple of people came in and out. Yeah, we would allow people into the
0: on the island, and sometimes we'd say, "No, no, you know too much about gymnastics. Right? You're not allowed.
1: If you if you asked a technical question." Right. You know, why you only got so many points for the triple-double som- somersault that you were voted <laughs> off Idiot Island. <laughs> and I had final say because I was the governor of the <laughs> Idiot. Island. You were the governor. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, that, and that continued. I mean, that 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 also moved into other Olympic type sports like figure skating. You oh, know, absolutely. I mean, so we would show up, and uh, some of us were there to cover it. Some of us were there to write about it, and some of us survive. were there
1: to get our credential for the Olympics. <laughs> exactly right. The right. first figure skating I ever covered was so we could get we could qualify for a ticket for the ticketed event of mm-hmm. figure skating in Littlehammer. Right. That day was the day that Tanya had Nancy whacked. Really? You were there? First day I was ever in in a figure skating arena.
0: Wait a minute. You were there in Detroit in January of 94? U.S. uh, figure skating championships,
1: right? The first day I had ever covered figure skating. Somebody said they've attacked Nancy Kerrigan, and I turned around and I said, she's the good one, right? (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) By the end of the day, of course, I was an expert. That's right. That's
0: right. (laughs) That's how it works. So you covered, did you cover that scandal
1: throughout the Olympics? I covered it uh, throughout the Olympics. I was on the Today Show uh, against uh, uh, Dan Shaughnessy, debating whether Tanya should be allowed to compete in the Olympics.
0: What was your stance?
1: I thought she should have been because she had not been convicted of anything. That's that's always been my defense. (laughs) I think the Constitution says until you have a guilty plea or a guilty sentence, then you still have your rights. So,
0: what was it like at those Olympics, at the Olympics skating venue, even for practices during Nancy and oh, the It was
1: amazing. You know, the, the day that they were both on the ice was more covered than most Olympic events themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, you went and there was just a sea of us. I remember uh, there was a woman skater named Lily Lee uh, who looked up and covered her mouth and went, Oh my God, just looking at the crowd. And, you know, I mean, you may not realize, but figure skating practices are big. Part of your final score from your competition is how you look during practice, mm-hmm. which to me is absurd. It's, it's like judging a Super Bowl on a walkthrough.
0: Allen Iverson would not be a good figure skater.
1: No, no, practice. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it was just incredible. And then when, you know, when Tanya... You know, broke her bootlace and the thing. It was like, this, this has gone to the absurd now.
0: Which is right in our wheelhouse. So right. you know, so he right. had he had some fun with that.
1: Yeah, a few years later, Tanya was uh, arrested for throwing a hubcap at her at her then husband. Really, I don't remember that. But but no one was ever surprised she had a hubcap handy. <laughs> yeah, she had
0: like a bandolier of hubcaps, and she would just yeah. whip one out and <laughs> yeah, fire it, was,
1: it. It was like a, a bow quiver. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, she spun on like Captain America's shield <laughs> that's she a great was, image she was she was supposed to uh box against a transgender in Fort Lauderdale and she withdrew and saying it's beneath my dignity really and, and the promoter said what dignity <laughs> <No>. <laughs> was that Bob Arum? <laughs> no yeah I think it was a a few. Few rungs down from the Bob Aaron They should have brought
0: they should have brought Jimmy Hart in from the world of wrestling, you know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, but you know, the Olympic moments, they could be they could be absurd, such as that, and that's probably the the epitome of absurd, but they could also be so, you know, personal and moving. I mean, I can bear witness to that, being fortunate to cover three. You covered, I think, ten. 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 Um, there were moments where they really touch your heart and, and it sounds like a cliche but to be there and experience it i think in italy you once told me that there was a moment that that has always stuck with you right
1: well oh, yeah uh, i think you're talking about the sorrow toma moment yes yeah yes. He was this old guy he had played for gran torino the the soccer team and the gran torino soccer team had all died in a plane crash it hit the town basilica well sorrow had a pregnant wife at the time and he had a knee injury so he wasn't going to play so he didn't go on the trip which was mm. South America mm. so in the years after the death of the team he had constructed a wall what he called his wall of death on on the living room wall and he had pictures of all the players mm. and he would point at them and he would say this was the ladies man this was the funny guy. Mm. This was the guy who was smart but quiet. But, yeah, and uh, would tell stories of these men who had been dead for decades. But in his life, he died in 2018. But in his mind, they were still alive. Mm. And just in the church, if you leaned over his patio, you could see the Olympic flame burning. wow. wow. But, you know, to this guy... His life had functionally ended, you know, in 1947. I think it was. Uh, it was a really moving moment. There was a moment in um, in, in Japan. Uh, I was walking down the street and it started to rain. Very cold rain. Winter Olympics in Nagano, and this woman who I'll never meet again. Walks up beside me and holds her umbrella over my head. Hmm. She didn't speak my language. I didn't speak hers. I was never going to see her again. She had nothing to gain but just human civility of holding the thing. And it really struck me that's what the Olympics are about. Hmm. Yeah, I'm a sucker for the ideal. Yeah, I've been to Olympics where. Iranian athletes wouldn't wrestle against Jewish athletes mm. because of their faith and the way they they were they were raised. Uh, you know, it, it can be the the most petty, most political arena you can ever imagine. But when it works, and every Olympics there are occasions when it works, when a fallen runner will pick another runner up and help him across the finish line. Mm-hmm. Uh, where Derek Redmond will fall on the on the lane and get up and finish the race with his father coming out of the stands to help him across the finish line. There are those moments that just capture your heart. And, you know, they really do make you understand why these silly sports, you know, who, whoever watches speed skating, if speed skating was going on in front of your window right now, would you watch <laughs> But at the Olympics, it's important. It matters. And by the way, I love speed skating. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's like human bowling,
1: you know? Oh, yeah. I, with, remember with a guy, I remember a guy winning and saying, looking around saying, I think I won. <laughs> because everyone else had fallen down. <laughs> hey, the survivor. Yeah. <laughs> what
0: is your favorite uh, favorite Olympic sporting event moment?
1: Well, I was there for the first Dream Team win. Uh, yeah, I'm going to tell you a weird story. When the Atlanta bombing happened, mm-hmm. uh, that was one of the first Dream Teams. I guess it was the second Dream Team. And
0: Yeah, 96 she- in Atlanta. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, Shaquille O'Neal had just signed like a $96 million contract with the L.A. Lakers and was trying to convince us of how the Olympics really mattered to him. Well, I went out and found a hammer thrower, and I still remember his name, David Popejoy. That year, he had moved from 18th to 14th in the national standings. Not exactly a big headline. Uh, I wrote that Shaquille O'Neal had a movie out. Someday, David Popejoy hoped to be able to afford to go to a movie. Mm. (laughs) And it just hit me that... Th- this guy is what the Olympics are about. Shaquille O'Neal is what the Olympics are about. Mm-hmm. This guy is. Shaquille has more money than David Pope Joy, me, and you, and everybody we know will ever ma- will ever make. Well, it depends on how <laughs> the
0: poker games are going.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and God bless him for it. But my ideal Olympic doesn't include dream teams. Mm-hmm. It, it it involves David Jansen celebrating to the heavens to to his dead sister. Oh, no, Dan, Dan Dan Jansen. Dan Jansen. Dan Jansen. I'm sorry. Yeah. It, it it involves uh, you know, people you would never, you will never remember. It involves Christine Woody. Were you there when Christine Woody talked? No. She was a uh, survivor of sexual abuse from from a neighbor when she was a kid there has never been a woman who has been braver or more forthcoming in her story than at, at her Olympics. And, uh, I still get chills thinking about it, you know, about eight of us riders are sitting around and she's talking about the way the guy smelled and the way the guy mm-hmm. looked mm-hmm. and the way the guy felt. And, uh, that she was able to overcome this and survive this and to become an Olympic champion. is an amazing story to me. Wow. That's why we watch sports.
0: Right, right. You think about the things that we've talked about here, just the wide range of emotions. We've had some great laughs, and um, now we've had moments of reflection on something like that. And I think that's when... That's what sports can do for people, you know? It can be just no, silly entertainment. It can be silly, funny. You know, we're joking around. But it also, it, there is that element that does bind us together, you know, as people. Um, that we don't know who's going to win when we show up, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And on the way, you know, we, we've we been blessed with some very special venues. I remember the Sydney Harbor. Mm, yeah. And, uh, I remember standing on the Great Wall of China. I remember being at the, at the basilica that housed the Shroud of Turin. I mean, it's, it's just an amazing way to spend a career.
0: Well, I remember being on Idiot Island. <laughs> <laughs> where, you, where you could have been the mayor. I don't think so, Gary. I think you were the mayor for, uh, you know, you're, nobody I was, was going to win that election. <laughs> that was a rigged election. <laughs> that's right,
1: fake news. <laughs> oh, that's
0: hilarious! That's hilarious. It's been really wonderful to reconnect, Gary. I, when I think about when people say to me, "What was it like to be a sports writer?" I think about the moments of among writers and just some of the the silliness and the anecdotal things that happen behind the scenes, and uh, just trying to capture that a little bit. You know, what was it like to do that job? You know um, what,
1: what I found out as the years go by. I think less about Michael Phelps winning his eighth gold mm -hmm. or touching out the guy, you know, to barely win in Australia. I think less about Joe Montana bringing his 49ers back to beat the Bengals in Super Bowl 23. Mm -hmm. And I think more about sitting around the press box and this guy yelling this guy out about my editor and this guy. (laughs) Yelling this out about uh, (laughs) this, I I think more about uh, the reaction to the media when uh, Roger Clemens threw the bat at Mike Piazza. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's the people. It's the whole scene. It's the trip to the zoo.
0: Yeah, it was like being in a circus, you know, as a boy from Kentucky, who next thing I know, I'm I'm getting sent around the world. I'm like, what? What what is this? It's a circus, and it's you you see all these characters at different places. Great
1: events, and tell them what you think. Right. Right. What an absurd way to make a living. Well, it beat working. Oh, it would beat the heck out of working. I'm telling you. (laughs) Well, Gary,
0: thanks a lot. It's been such a treat to uh, to to reflect on your wonderful career and the great stories you're. (laughs) Just one of my favorite writers and people in the business. And I miss those moments as much as you do. And I'm so so glad that you were, uh, you took the time to, to be with us.
1: Anytime, buddy. Thanks for
0: listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on.